Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Third on KTS, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and so we've got a great guest here. Uh, she's got a new book out. The new book is called The Spy Coast, a thriller, The Martini Club, book one. Tess Gerritsen, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it sounds like we're going to have an interesting conversation with two of your co-hosts here. <laughs> we, we, you know, it's always interesting, never boring. Yes. <laughs> well, well, Tess. Before before we get into the book itself, how did you get into writing this? Because you've got quite a, a a different background in the sense of you didn't start start out kind of going, I want to be a writer and I want want to write a thriller or a spy book. No, I never planned to write a spy book. Um, I you know I pretty much write crime novels, and I mean I wrote the Rizzolian Isles series about the you know, detective Rizzoli and medical examiner Moore Isles. Um, I kind of wrote this book because of of the kind of, of the town I live in. I live in this little town called Camden, Maine, and um, a lot of CIA people know about it. I didn't know about it when I moved here 33 years ago. Uh, my husband uh, is a medical doctor, and he opened up a new medical practice. And he took occupational histories of his new patients, most of whom were retirees. And every so often, one, uh, they would say, I used to work for the government. I can't talk about it. And he heard that a couple of times and thought, what the heck is going on in this town? And we found out from a real estate agent that uh, they're all retired CIA. And she said, yeah, they're all over the place here. It turned out it was a worst kept secret in Maine. We have them everywhere, not just in the Midcoast, but also in Bangor, um, throughout the woods. 
And I asked people why they were here. How, you know, what was it that drew them here uh, to retirement? There are a couple of explanations, and maybe uh, Joe can fill me in on whether these make sense. Um, Taking notes. One, <laughs> one of them is that um, Mainers are very respectful of your privacy. You can come here, live in the woods, and nobody will bother you. Ding. Another is that it's uh, far from nuclear targets. Um, I believe this used to be a place, a location for safe houses um, in the 60s and 70s. They would bring people up here if they wanted to hide. Um, and to be honest, there, there has been some CIA activity here in the late 60s and early 70s with the MKUltra uh, program. Um, in fact, I know which house they were giving the drugs to people <laughs> that's still here. And um, so there is a long history of the CIA knowing about Maine. And also, come on, it's a beautiful place. I mean, it, that's what I'm doing here. I'm, I could live anywhere, but I live in this, this beautiful state. Wow. So that became, that was a background. And, you know, it's taken me 30 years to really think about what do I do with that, that information. Um, I have interesting neighbors. They, I, there were two of them. There were two retired spies on my little street a um, couple decades ago, the parents of one of my son's good friends were married spies uh, working in during the Vietnam War. Um, and I thought, what do spies do after retirement? Do they, I mean, they must be like everybody else. They get together for cocktail parties. Uh, maybe they have book groups. Uh, maybe they get together to share gossip. Um, so it was the idea of what is, what do you do when you're in your 60s and 70s? You've had a really interesting job. You settle down in a small town that's very safe and very quiet. And suddenly uh, the past comes knocking at your door and you have to go back to work and you don't want to. So that was, that was the genesis of, uh, of this, the Spy Coast and also my main character, Maggie Bird. D does that ever make you kind of, second guess your neighbors or wonder what they did and kind of do you watch your back do you feel kind of have you learned stuff that you didn't know before well i know we have had a um we have had somebody who was actually an assassin in vietnam who um i think he ended up on the, on the cover of, of life magazine actually because he was so notorious but he's long dead um but no i i think what the lovely thing about it and um since you have two intelligence people here, is that we have a small community here with a lot of State Department, a lot of retired CIA, people who have an international perspective on things. Um, every year, this little town, 5,000 people, hosts what's called the Camden Conference. We bring in people from around the world, uh, diplomats, spies, um, foreign leaders, uh, all kinds of foreign affairs people, and um, this is a conference that's open to the public. If you can get a ticket, it's hard to get a ticket. And I sit in that auditorium, and I listen to the questions that some gray-haired old lady stands up and asks. And I think when I hear her talk, oh, my God, she, she was one of them, because they are such intelligent, such incisive questions. You know these people have lived abroad. You know that they are clued into foreign affairs. And those are my neighbors, which, is, which makes it a really special place in the world. Hey, Tess, this is Joe. You said the, the word, and my own little story, that I kept saying to my wife when I got out or left was, I finally get to be a part of a community. I, I can join things. I can do things. So I'm wondering, I know that this book focuses more on the emotional aspect of these retirees rather than the tradecraft. What did you find in the, or what did you write about? What do you think was the most interesting things on the retirees from the sort of emotional point of view? 
Yeah, well, thank you for pointing that out because, I mean, obviously I am no expert on tradecraft. But what I, I am just fascinated by um, are, you know, I was an anthropologist uh, in, in college. That's where I, I did my, my research um, and my education. So for me, every, every new culture is different. And I think that this is its own separate culture. And I wanted to understand the stresses and the anxieties of what it's like to work in this, in this field. I imagine, and you tell me if I'm wrong or not, that it must be hard. Interpersonal relationships must be hard because you can't tell the truth to a lot of people. Um, when you make friends, when you're cultivating an asset, it is secondary gain. Do you have, I mean, every time you make a friend, you always wonder, is there secondary gain on either side? You know, are, are they trying to get something out of me? That's got to hurt. Um, and then I also wonder what it's like for your spouse, um, it, unless you're both married to the agency, and I know that there are a number of married couples. Um, what does it do to your, your the trust and your communication uh, with the person you're married to? Do you have, is there a higher divorce rate? I would assume oh, yeah. there probably is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a game, it's a sport. Is. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that's what I was focusing on, on the emotional aspects of what it's like to be Maggie Bird and, and, and have run away, really, from, from the field uh, to find a safe and quiet place in Maine. And then now this, the, the past comes knocking, and it's haunting her because something really terrible happened uh, on her last mission, uh, having to do with the love of her life. Yeah, I got out actually for my wife. She wasn't uh, planning on being the wife of a case officer and going overseas and traveling around the world. So I just made the career decision that my marriage was more important than the, my CIA career. So it's well, good for you. It, it is the, you know, it is it, it, the, the stress of it is immense. And you just, like you say, you just got to keep it all in. So, but I want to ask a question with that, from the emotional point of view of you and your characters that you're building, I get the characters in a little bit, but your readers expect a certain book from you. And suddenly yeah. you're coming at them with a spy book. What did you think about your readers? What do you think they would think when you were doing this? You know, I was at the point, and I'm at the point in my career, I'm 70 years old, and my point is that I don't, can I say this? <laughs> don't bleep it. I don't give an F anymore. I am going to write the book I want to write because there's so little time left. You know, I, I can I can feel the years melting away. I'm thinking, I'm going to write the projects that really move me right now. And the funny thing is, I knew that this was going to be a hard sell to my old publisher uh, because they want, um, you know, I'm in a box. They want Rizzolian dials again and again and again. Um, and uh, I knew this would be a, a difficult marketing thing because it's not, it's not what I'm known for. Um, so I wrote it anyway. And that's, I, I wasn't sure what the, uh, what my readers would think. But as it turns out, um, I'm finding a lot of new readers, a lot of, um, older readers, a lot of male readers, which, um, was surprising, um, because they like the genre. So I'm assuming with the, um, like kind of community of resources that you've got around you, you've probably done a lot of research asking neighbors a lot of questions and, and do, doing your kind of intelligence gathering that way. Has your image of, like kind of spies uh, and the perception of, of what what we do um has that changed from before you wrote this book to now i, I hate to say it but i think you all feel much more ordinary to me now <laughs> <laughs> we could have, yeah. we're less than ordinary <laughs> it's Boy. it's just that you, you you know we have this vision we're all grew, we all grew up on james bond right okay um we always think man of danger all this stuff but i'm looking at my neighbors and they just 
you know, they're, they're, they're working in the library, they're at the post office, they're shopping for groceries. Um, and I know some of their kids, and uh, actually I think I got the most interesting stuff sometimes from the, from the, the children, the grown-up children now who had memories of dad who got killed in Africa um, or um, uh, somebody. In fact, I found out about the MK Ultra uh, operations here because of the child of one of the spies who was living here at the time. Um, so, no, I, I think when we have a vision of a profession that has been glamorized, we always think it's more glamorous than it really is. And that's true for doctors as well. Um, true for astronauts as well. I think that we always think the grass is greener on the other side or more exciting on the other side. But as with working in an emergency room, we are saving lives every day. It becomes humdrum as well. Yeah, I've no doubt. And uh, and I suppose with, with that in mind, what was probably the most surprising thing you found out about the, the entire community? Was there anything that really shocked you? No, nothing that really shocked me. It's just that there was, um, I think what I was surprised by was how many of them there are. That I, that I, was, I was having um, a series of dinners over a, maybe a month, and I realized later that every single meal I had had a former spy at the table. And it was just accidental. I mean, they just, they were just invited to the same dinners that I was invited to. Um, and, uh, I, I think that was an ex, that, that was a, you know, showing me that we are, pre they are pretty thick up here. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean thick, you know. <laughs> yeah, got it. We should be here too. They're in the woods everywhere, yeah. <laughs> so your main character, Maggie Bird, how do you make that character real? Do you, do you, do you work out the character in your mind and do you see them or experience them? Do you have a relationship with Maggie? I heard her voice in my head. And this is the way I think most of my characters, the best characters come to you is they start talking to you. And the first thing she said, and I even wrote it down on my notebook next to my bed because she was talking to me, it was, I'm not the woman I used to be. And I thought, okay, tell me more. What, what kind of a woman did you used to be? And and that um, there was there are a couple things you can learn from uh, a voice in your head. You can find out what what is the tone. Are they funny or are they sad? Maggie was sad. She was haunted. Um, you hear their their age in their voice, and I knew she was at least sixty. Um, and you know about a person's educational background because of the vocabulary they happen to use when they're talking to you in your head. So um, that was the beginning, and I wanted to. I wanted to place her firmly in a main that I am familiar with. So I made her a chicken farmer. I mean, I know chickens. <laughs> my, my son used to have a flock of 70. Um, and so here's Maggie with her chicken farm, and I wanted to place her in a place where she, she felt comfortable. You know, she's, she's a very cautious person. She didn't buy this farm until she checked out the neighbor next door. So she knows her neighbor is somebody she can believe in and she can trust. Um, but that was that was how it started. I don't do um, biographical sketches ahead of time. I would like them to reveal themselves um, through what they do and what they say. Wow. They let you drive still when you hear these voices? Or? <laughs> you, you know what? <laughs> driving is the most creative time of all. That's It is. Driving, yep. I mean, I, there's something about driving. I, I think it's they say that once your your brain is occupied doing something else, the anterior superior cingulate gyrus or something lights up, and that's that's when your light bulb goes off, and the and the you know you get all these these incredible ideas. So um, yeah, they let me drive, and I and I drive <laughs> because I need to figure out plot problems. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I say. My interior, what's over there, is busy right now. Don't talk to me. 
Um, <laughs> well, then you actually hit on where I was going. I know that you're sort of a, for lack of a better writer's phrase, or your pantser. So how does that work when you're building out a character and building out a spy book? You know, I know you're going to hit dead ends. You're going to hit stuff that you wrote that you're not sure of. Does, does that help you? Does that build you out? You know, uh, it's a terrible way to write. I wish I could do it some other <laughs> way. I, I wish I could plot things out and, and know exactly what's going to happen. I've never been able to do that. Every time I try doing that, the book ends up boring. Um, so, I yeah, I just I write a lot of into myself, into a lot of blind alleys. I probably throw away about two-thirds of what I write for the first draft. Um, and, in fact, I, I heard a wonderful term for the first draft. It's called the puke draft because that's the one that's awful. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a way I would, I would recommend. I know that there are some writers who are very organized, and I think a lot of them seem to be lawyers. Um, they, they have everything plotted out ahead of time. I, and I find that sometimes the most interesting twists happen on the fly. You know, your 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 book is going this way and going that way, and suddenly your character says something that you weren't expecting, and you think, "Oh, that just completely opens up a new plot point." Um, so, the discovery is the fun of going through the is that's the first draft, you know, the, the discovery of it, and then the second and third is just sheer hard work. When you're going through your character, when you're writing, like Maggie. Um, and you're living that experience, like you're you're hearing the voice and you're you're working it out and all that. At the end of the book here, now that it's published and out, do you think this whole experience of writing this book has changed you some? Um, I think it's. I'm not sure it has actually. I think what it has done. Well, maybe what it's done is it's it's changed me in a way that I've, I'm much. I'm paying a lot more attention to to international affairs, and to. Um, what the work that the CIA is doing. I mean, I, I have a huge library now of tradecraft. I have a huge library of of spy memoirs, and that's that's where I really got into the heads of what it's like to be an intelligence. The memoirs were invaluable. Um, so I think it's it's mainly opened up my my eyes to oh well the kind of work you guys did. Um, and the pressures and the um, the the failures, really. I mean, like the failure of not knowing that Hamas was going to attack. That's that's the kind of thing that's got to weigh down on people who who didn't either either didn't see it or weren't listened to. Well, it's also the idea of you can do a lot of work, maybe try to recruit somebody forever and and, and fail at it, or or not know the results of your labor. And it's like just you just got to walk away and let, let whatever. Happen, happen. That's you know, yeah. Compartmentalizing in your head, right? That's um. I mean, that's got to be. I, I guess it's a little bit like being a doctor. You cannot be too emotionally involved because it will drive you nuts. Um, you know, you lose a patient, and you know you made a mistake, and is that going to destroy you? Well, it can't because you have to see the next patient. Um, so I think it's. I mean, that's probably similar to anybody who has a job where the consequences are are, are catastrophic. So are the bad. People in your books, were they built differently in a spy book versus a true crime book? Or crime book, sorry. Well, yeah, but I think because the bad guy in this book is way... Well, I mean, they're all evil. All my bad guys are evil. But this one has... Um, the consequences of getting on his bad side are big um, because his um, his evil stretches out um, you know, in a global fashion. Um, I was really dealing with a London laundromat um, with uh, money laundering um, in England, and you know, calling back on um, 
the number of bankers who have died have fallen out of windows uh, and how poorly all these deaths were investigated in London. Um, it's, it's really kind of mind-boggling. This, happened, this has been going on so long. And maybe Gavin would like to comment on this. I was going to say, Gavin, where were you, Gavin? We're gloves. Yeah, we call them the police force because you've got to force them to investigate most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> they're, they're, they're too busy. Um, well, they're, they're tied up with a, a lot of um, coffee drinking and that kind of thing. Oh, so, that's yeah. Gavin yeah. saying that, not me. Yeah. <laughs> We've got Scotland Yard on the other line, yeah. so. That's all right. Yeah, me, me and Scotland Yard, we get on really, really well. Um, they leave me alone and I leave them alone. So, <laughs> so when, you're, when you're writing these bad guys, um, I mean, what, what? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. What's kind of. I mean, I, I love writing bad guys. I, I, I get this whole kind of tingle writing bad guys. I think it's brilliant. So, do you, do you make them like just pure evil through and through, or do you try and give them some kind of justified backstory to, 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 that built them to how they are? Um, this particular bad guy, um, I didn't have to justify what he did. He just does things, um, and it's not, and it's totally unjustified. What I made him was uh, a typical um, man who's who is focused purely on money. He's a businessman. He does what his business requires, whether it means you know getting rid of that banker over there, um, or or uh, divorcing his wife, or um, you know doing what it, what business requires. The way I was trying to humanize him, even though he's not really a very human person, um, was through his, uh, his relationships. He has a daughter, and that daughter means a lot to him. And that daughter is very important to the plot. Um, and then I wanted, I wanted to look at the people who are around him, because in a way, character is best described by what other people think of you who are close to you. And um, so I was describing his character really a lot through the eyes of his teenage daughter, who she sees daddy, and she sees daddy's, you know, making her do things or making her go to private school or making her do, do this and that. Um, and that relationship, in a way, humanizes him, but it also makes him look even worse in some ways. And did you come over to London when you were doing your research? Did you did you have the um, unpleasant um, trip to the UK? <laughs> well, you know, I go to the UK every couple of years for business anyway, so um, I I know it I know it pretty well from book tour. In fact, all the places that I wrote about in this book, I have been there and, and loves a lot of them. I mean, I've been to Istanbul probably seven times, um, Bangkok uh, several times. 
um, Turkey, I mean, Turkey, Gubushluk, there's a little, there's a, a pretty little beach town there where they have their honeymoon. I, I know that, that beach very well. And, and, um, uh, you know, Italy and then London. Um, but I wanted to, I guess, get the flavor of places that I have been. I don't like to write too much about places that I have not been. And these are places that I, I know what the air smells like. So I, I worked those in, um, just because I knew them. So your location, you write like a character then? Yeah, um, so, well, Maine is, I think the state of Maine is the character that I, that I think this, this book is about. It's about the state of Maine and purity, a little innocence of a little town that, uh, where bad things kind of wash up. And that is one of the themes I think that, um, comes through as well is that no matter where you live, there is no safe place in this world. Um, you can live in some far remote place up in, um, in Newfoundland. And an atomic bomb goes off somewhere. It's still going to, that air is still going to get to you. Um, and that's the way I look at the world right now is there's no safe place. And we are surrounded by conflict. And eventually the conflict washes up on your shores. It may be, take a couple of years, um, but we all have to pay attention. So do you, do you have a, a, a subtext then for this? Is there, is there a meaning in the story or is it pure um, just entertainment? I think the meaning, well, it has to do with, you know, the fact I'm older, is that we should not overlook the expertise of our older generation. Um, part of what the Martini Club, my group of five retirees, is, is dealing with is that they have, whether they wanted to or not, are no longer working for the agency, but they have a lot to contribute. Um, and I wanted to, older readers in particular, to read this and think, hey, this I'm not too old for an adventure. I can still have an adventure. I can, I can still strap on a gun and, and do some good in this world uh, or, you know, go to Bangkok and save my friend. Um, so it's, it's that sense of, yeah, you know, life is not really over until it's over, that we have, we have hope for other adventures. Um, and the other thing is, is this, um, this other character I have, Joe Thibodeau, who is the young um, acting chief of police. She's a young woman in her 30s. Um, she's a solid Mainer. She's, she, her family's been here for generations. She reminds me of a lot of the Maine people I know who are good uh, salt-of-the-earth people. And here she's dealing with these five retirees. She doesn't know who they are, um, and she doesn't know why they're always one step ahead of her, and it really irritates her. So that, um, that conflict between the, the generations is, is something else I wanted to explore because I feel the best disguise for for a spy for anybody is gray hair, um, and she overlooks them because of that. So what actions do the older characters in your book take? It's obviously not an action-adventure bang-bang book. What is it that you wanted them to do or become now that they're sort of – have they already became what they are? <laughs> I want them to use their brains. And um, once uh, Maggie has that – when the dead body shows up on her driveway and she realizes uh, – yeah, dangers come back knocking. She has to go to her friends. And they they are able to marshal their intelligence gathering by trying to track down who is who is after her, number one. And then number two, when she has to go off to Bangkok to meet a former colleague who may have some answers, two of her friends travel with her, um, kind of bodyguards, kind of, you know, co-sleuths um, and... I just wanted to show that, yeah, they, they still have their wits about them. They have, they have an idea of what to do and where to go and who's behind it, and they have the background to, um, to analyze a situation that maybe a, a local cop would not have. Will they be in the 
second book? Oh, yes. Yeah, the whole group is coming back. Um, I didn't know it was going to be a, a series um, because, as I said, this was a one-off. This was like my swan song. I was going to write this, and nobody's going to read it anyway. Um, but then towards the end, as sometimes happens, you fall in love with your characters. You think, I've, I've had a good time with them. I want to drink more martinis with these people. And um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll write a second. And then when the book was picked up and Amazon Studios bought it um, or optioned it for a television series, it was, okay, so when's the next book? And I thought, okay, I guess I better write a series because other people are interested in, in this little town as well. Yeah, people ask me not to write. When are you going to stop writing, Joe? I, I have the opposite <laughs> problem. <laughs> That's what I did when I wrote the trilogy. I've now, now turned the trilogy into a series, and, uh, yeah, I just love that idea. You mentioned about Amazon. Um, if if so, this if this because I know you've done some successful screenplays already. If this does go to the big screen, who would be your ideal, um, you know, kind of main character? Who would be your ideal protagonist to play that part? I I have you know what I have nobody in mind. I mean, when I was writing, I was kind of thinking a little bit along the lines of of Helen Mirren, um, you know, maybe maybe 50, twenty years earlier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't have any idea, but I, I will. I do know there are a lot of actors of a certain age who don't have roles anymore. This would be perfect for them. Um, and what's surprising to me is that we we don't have a lot of shows on American television uh, that feature older actors. We're we're just like a youth obsessed um, culture here in the U.S. Unlike British television, where you have people who look normal, you have people uh, who who are a headlining long running mystery series for 20 years and they go from you know from 50 to, to 70 uh, in the course of the show. Um, so it, this is this is a I think it's a sea change in the U.S. Partly because our generation is uh, is getting older, and um, I think Hollywood's paying attention to its older viewership now. Yeah, I think here in the UK, it's just that nobody can be bothered to actually go out and replace them. I think that's what it is. <laughs> they show up. They, the same actors show up on every single show. I notice that. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 they've got like their own little club, and they just kind of you know pick who they, who, who they want from that club. So, violence on the page and the type of book you're writing in that. Um, are you conscious of it? Do you think about it? Um, how how do you approach writing violent scenes? You know, that's a good question. I don't I don't think I write many violent scenes. I mean, the opening scene, yeah, okay, there's there's some violence in it, but it's very matter-of-fact, and let's just, you know, get rid of this guy. When I was writing the Rizzolian Isles series, I was accused of being a very violent writer, <laughs> and I'm not. I think what I was doing was describing in too vivid a detail the crime scene. Um, as my, my medical examiner was walking through it, and she was recreating what had happened in that room. And readers... Read that recreation in somebody's mind and think they've actually seen the violence happen. Um, so I don't think I, and, and th the truth is I also am not crazy about action scenes. I notice that when I watch a James Bond film, as soon as the car chase happens, I'm zoned out. I'm bored. Um, or gunplay or fights, fist fights. Fist fights to me are really, really boring. It's like, you know, please, can you move on to good dialogue? Um, so that's the kind of, of, movie I like is, is really scintillating dialogue. I think that's much more interesting than watching another car chase. Um, so when I write my books, I don't have a lot of action, I think. I have more, it's more of um, puzzlement. I like, I like a scene where everybody's a bit off balance. 
you don't know why. You don't know what's wrong. You just know something is wrong. And there's, there's that little tension there, and it's the tension that makes us read. I don't think it's the action. Well, that leads to my question, sort of. True or false? If Tess was asked what she does for a living, she'd say storyteller. Mm-hmm. Is that true? This is true. This is true. <laughs> Since I was seven years old, actually. I would, yeah. That, I wanted to be a storyteller when I was seven, and my dad said it was no way to make a living. So that's why I became a doctor. You still like this? Uh, you like the idea of storytelling? Because my flip question is sort of like, after a few years of having been a, a storyteller, what is at that point in the writing process that you go, oh, man, I really hate this, this moment. i got to fight my way through it. Oh, halfway through every single book. I guess, you know, it, it's one of these, it's, you know, musicians, when they play music, they love what they do every minute of the, t- of the, of the, of the time, I think. Um, I think writing is a love-hate thing. Um, I start off loving an idea, get to the middle of it and think, this is the worst thing. This is, this is the puke draft. This is the worst thing I've ever written. Nobody's going to like this. Um, I'm going to ruin my reputation. Uh, you know, I'll never do it again. Um, we all do that. We bang our heads against the desk. We hate what we're doing. And then until all of a sudden we love what we're doing. So we, yeah, what a crazy profession this is. You have to love this. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing this because there are so many roadblocks and bad reviews and mean people, um, who will, <laughs> who will tell you you're a failure. Um, so we do it because that's what we, that's what we love and we do it for ourselves. There are a lot of professions out there where you kind of put your work out there and say, go ahead, beat the hell out of me. Right. There aren't. I mean, actors, uh, actors, politicians, um, musicians, you know, maybe singers. Um, they Radio hosts. Radio hosts, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? It, it always annoys me that people will say, well, you know, just put on, you know, put on your big boy pants and just take it like the rest of us. I think, no, the rest of you don't do this. The rest of you don't have work reviews that are put up, um, you know, for the whole public to see. Uh, if you're a nice little social worker and somebody writes you a bad review, all your friends and neighbors aren't going to hear about this. Um, that's very much unlike what we do. Yeah, yeah, and you see that with singers or actors, and and uh, people say, oh, they're washed up, you know, because they've been doing it 20, 30 years or something. And I'm thinking, well, you're doing your job for that long. If someone said that to you, it, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. different – You'd be devastated, and I think yeah. people, and and that's that's why so many people, um, you know, especially young people, find the internet so damaging. Is that they see one or two little bad comments about them, and they go into a tizzy. Um, <laughs> when you're a writer and your stuff is out there, you, you're going to see bad comments everywhere. Yeah. Well, how do you handle that? Because, um, in a way, you're putting some of yourself into the books. You're putting your own feelings and and thoughts, and and you put that on pa- paper. And it's open. And nowadays, it's a real mean world. Yeah. My God, it's really judgmental world. That's the best way to say it. You're totally being judged. Like, I look at your new book now, and right, you've got 17,000 ratings. But that's a lot of people to say a lot of things about you and and what you write. Yeah, and... uh... (laughs) <laughs> and some of the, and of course some of the some of the comments are are like what <laughs> I get a lot of bad comments about Maggie killing the fox. Oh my God, nobody liked that. That was mean. That was that was animal cruelty. So um, yeah, what do I do? Um, I I'm an inveterate whiskey drinker. <laughs> that helps a lot. All I mean, right, let's go. <laughs> I think if you read this book, you'll know that Maggie is a whiskey drinker too, and that's uh, a lot of the whiskeys that I mention are. Uh, 
like the Longmorn, uh, that's something that I have tasted, and I'm, I'm afraid I will never taste it again because it's long gone. <laughs> Let me ask a question. I'm going to go back to the storytelling for a second. Because people listen to the show, and they want to be like you. They don't want to be like me or Gavin. So they don't want to be like Al. But <laughs> the, can someone learn to be a storyteller, or they have to be born that way? It's a little of both. I mean, I think that there are everybody, um, you know, I I'm, I'm think about this scenario, okay? Um, everybody has an Uncle Harry in their in their family who is so boring, nobody wants to be in the room with him. And maybe he's married to Aunt Maud. And maybe they'll come into the kitchen one day, and they both had a car accident. And Uncle Harry will proceed to tell you about the car accident, and you're bored out of your mind because he doesn't know which details to leave out. And then his wife sits down and tells the exact same story, the exact same characters, and you can't stop listening because she knows what to leave out. I think good storytelling is about knowing what to leave out. Um, you know, leaving out the stuff that doesn't matter, that is not interesting, that is um, inconsequential. Um, I, I'm not sure that is, um, you can learn that. I think it's some, a lot of it is instinct. You can certainly make a, a good writer a better writer, but I'm not sure you can make a bad writer into a good writer. Sorry, Joe. Yeah, okay. I am signing off now. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this, how, how do you, when you're writing this whole thing, how do you experience it? Like, do you have to be in the right mood or when you're doing your, your, your manuscript, or do you, can you just sit down and do it? Oh, at any time. Yeah, I can't be in. I, it, you know, if you wait for the mood, you're not. You're just not going to get anything done. I, um, I'm obsessive compulsive, and I need to finish a book in a certain amount of time. Well, sometimes it's because it's in my contract. I don't have a choice. Um, but uh, I, I treat it as you know, I got to get this thing done by a certain time, and let's get going. Um, and I'm not always in the mood for it. I mean, sometimes it's it's summertime, and you want to go for a hike instead. Um, but I do treat it as a job, and it's, it's very serious. And as the, as the deadline gets closer, I start to write seven days a week, uh, many hours a day, um, just whatever it takes to get the job done. So since writing this, have you now become a avid spy-fi fan, or did, was there always a little bit of a, a spy-fi lover in there? And, and, and who would be the kind of spy fiction author that you would say, that was the one that inspired me to kind of, or, or, or based the characters around or, you know, kind of had any inspiration on your story and your writing style? Yeah, well, you know, I always go back to uh, John Le Carré because um, a lot of the spy novels that I see are James Bondian with violence and action, and I, I don't, I like multi-layered stories uh, where you, where the reality kind of, you know, reveals itself little by little and you're taken aback every step of the way. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to have people dying, um, although that's, I mean, eventually spy novels usually involve somebody dying. Um, so I, I think I would still go back to Le Carre uh, for, for my, you know, the guy I would love to emulate. The thinking plot. <laughs> well, you, you, Joe and, and Gavin are good, too. <laughs> no, yeah. I had to, I had to add more bang bang because he told me to. I tried to write oh, more you know, but, you know. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I think editors yep. don't know what they're talking about sometimes. Just, <laughs> yeah. just like I think that a movie, you know, movie producers don't know what they're talking about a lot of times either. Well, I, I often quote Josh Hood, who told, who told me, uh, if you get stuck, just kill somebody. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. That, that moves <laughs> the when in doubt. When in doubt, kill somebody. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. We didn't get back to writing. Yeah. Well, it's just been inter- very, very nice interview. So, Tess, are you doing social media, website, all that stuff? Do you have any of those that you could share with people? Uh, yeah, I have a website. It's TessGarretson.com. Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, or X, whatever you call it, at Tess Garrison. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I, you know, I'm not crazy about social media, but I do it because I have to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we'll see you on TikTok soon. Oh, right? God, no. <laughs> I'm too old for that. <laughs> the Chinese are watching her. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're never too old. Never too old. Oh. You know. Anyway, you could. Uh, it's been a, it's been real fun. I, I enjoy it. So now, the new book, of course, is called The Spy Coast. It's a thriller, The Martini Club, book one. Our guest is the author of that book, Tess Gerritsen. So thank you for being on the show. And thank you. And thank you all for your interesting comments. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something weird media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.